0: Joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And we're here with a new episode of Falling Through plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Although today's episode is actually gonna be more of a historical one, because we've got a fun little story to tell y'all. But first, Alex, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Good, 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 good. I'm I'm doing pretty good myself. It was actually sunny outside. I got to enjoy yeah. some time outside, away from the video games, but now we're in the darkest uh, we're gonna be in the darkest of stories today. And by darkest, I mean, eh, not that dark, but, you okay. know, it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be a yeah. good one. But we're going to start this off by going on a bit of a tangent, one that I think people aren't going to really expect. And I got to ask you a question, Alex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, you, do you like cars? Yeah, I do. I do like cars. Yeah, you kind of like a gearhead, or I like guess just like, are you like kind of like an enthusiast or just... Not not really, just sort of a casual appreciator, I guess I would say. Hmm, Okay. Do you have like a particular favorite car?
1: Um, sort of a long time favorite of mine is the—I'm uh, going to blank on the year—but the Toyota Celica, the last model that they made. Mm. Um, not for really any reason other than
0: I like the way it looks. That's a that's a pretty deep cut. I can appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I, myself, have never really been into cars too much, but I, I totally understand why, like, some people, like, are really deep into car culture, you know? mm mm-hmm. uh, Like, I understand why people would find expensive sports and luxury cars alluring, and, like, one would – like, some, like, people would, like, kill for a chance to, like, drive, like, a terrible Porsche. Like, totally mm-hmm. understand. Yeah. And the reason why I understand this is my grandmother owned a 1994 Jaguar. Uh, Ooh. Yeah, and – you know, my grandmother was uh, somebody of at least some level of means uh, in mm-hmm. California, and, like, all, she ended up, like, losing everything in the, uh, the 2008 crash, unfortunately. Oh, uh, yeah. But she still kept that car, and I could totally understand why. It's a status symbol, a sign you've mm-hmm. made it, and a way to tell everyone else you did. Now— It's why I know that and why I'm about to tell you will kind of make a lot of car enthusiasts feel like a tremendous amount of pain. Mm -hmm. And anyone who didn't like cars pay attention with like some real morbid curiosity. Okay. So, Alex, on February 21st, 2006, an accident occurred on the Pacific Coast Highway just outside of Los Angeles. Now, involved in this accident wasn't just a car, but a very special type of car. It was a Ferrari Enzo. Mm. Now, for those of you who don't know, a Ferrari, Enzo, Ferrari Enzos were manufactured between 2002 and 2004. It was, it was a limited amount of time. And only 400 of these cars were made. They, they retailed at the time for roughly about, I think, $4.5 million, uh, something like that, anyways. Uh, mm-hmm. So, very, very sought after sort of car. Uh, now, this particular Ferrari was uh, traveling at an estimated 166 miles per hour when it. Oof. Oh, yes. When it Oof. hit, and it's a very aerodynamic car, Alex. It sure is. So when it hit a bump, it did what many, uh, you know, racing cars do when they hit a bump. Mm-hmm. It flew. Yep. Yeah. It, that'll do it. It will. So it lost control. It became airborne, and it hit a light bulb. sheared the car in half, completely Oof. obliterated. Back end of the car containing the engine block was instantly annihilated, spreading debris over a distance of about 400 yards, so four football fields. Okay, wow. Oh, yeah, and the front of the car wasn't any better, though. Uh, It was shattered beyond belief, except for the cockpit, which, through a feat of engineering and owing to the fact it's based off the roll cages of professional race cars, completely Mm. intact. Damn. Yeah. When police arrived on the scene, they found a passenger, an incredibly drunk Swedish man by the name (laughs) of Stefan Eriksson. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Erickson, despite all odds, only had a, free, like a few bruises and a split lip. Now, it gets better because he claimed he was not the driver, but rather a friend of his named Diedrich had crashed a vehicle and then fled into the hills. Uh-huh. Uh, he did not provide a last name. Okay. Now, this is obviously very suspicious for a multitude of reasons, both in the moment, but just overall. hmm. Because, you know, how did a drunk Swede get a hold of one of only 400 cars in existence, and survived his vaporization long enough to very clearly lie to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. All good questions. All good questions. And, Alex, we're going to answer that question over the course of this podcast. Because in order to answer it, we got to start at the beginning. As we tell the story of a car crash of an electronics company and their overhyped, awful product, the Gizmondo. Oh, boy. Alex, have you heard of the Gizmondo? <sighs> I know the
1: name Gizmondo, but I'm trying to think if I'm thinking of a different Gizmondo.
0: You may be thinking of Gizmodo, which is... is, Yes, I am thinking of Gizmodo, the electronics journalist website? Yes, yeah, the Gawker website that focuses on tech. Okay, yes. (laughs) Yeah, commonly mistaken. Fair enough. I do not know the Gizmondo then. Oh, this is going to be a wonderful story because, oh boy... This is a story that very briefly would meet, uh, like, basically make international news. Mm. <laughs> Mostly because of this car crash, but also because of all the fraud. <laughs> oh, yep, they will do it, too. Now, Gizmondo is not only the name of a company, specifically a European company, uh, that's an offshoot of uh, an American company that we're going to be talking about in detail, but it's also the name of a handheld device, a portable gaming console that came out in 2005. Uh, contemporaries with the PlayStation Portable, the Nintendo DS, uh, the Tapwave Zodiac, and of course, everyone's favorite taco, the N-Gage. Ah, yes. Ah, uh, good old Engage. I love the Engage so much. I miss it every day. Mm-hmm. Is the flagship and only product of Tiger Telematics, a Swedish or American company, depending on how you look at it, electronics mm. company that had mm-hmm. previous experience in GPS devices. Now, Alex... It's kind of an impressive-looking device on the surface because it seems very much ahead of its time. It was a uh, 3D-capable portable system with GPS, text messaging, and multimedia playback options. Oh. Yeah. It's an idea that other companies, such as Tapwave with their Zodiac Mm -hmm. product, and Sony with their own PSP would uh, attempt to kind of, like, emulate a bit. Like, not necessarily kind of, like, copy what Gizmondo was doing, but they had similar ideas that were trying to bring to market. Right. Now... They obviously wouldn't quite get all the way there. We wouldn't really quite get this all-in-one sort of device until we got Apple's iPhone. But, you know, it, it's obviously a very clearly good idea. Mm-hmm. It also spectacularly failed, so we got to answer the question of why it failed. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do that. We're going to talk about that, how it led to a man destroying an ex- incredibly expensive car, and kind of just get into all the fraud and embezzlement that just kind of happened to this company in general. <laughs> But in order to start with that, we have to actually talk about somebody who's not Stefan Eriksson, but rather another Swedish man, Carl Freer. Now, Alex, I imagine you probably have not heard of old Carl. I don't think I have. Oh, Carl's a character. Because Carl, like Stefan, is a Swedish national. Mm-hmm. Now, tall, blonde, possessing a ton of charisma, and also kind of a volatile personality, mm-hmm. he's a man who's kind of like one of those natural salesmen. Uh, He's been described by employees at Gizmondo as somebody who could sell sand in the Sahara Desert, mm-hmm. uh, ice to Eskimos, that sort of level. Right. Um, kind of guy who you he would fire you, rehire you that same day, and then send you off to go and try to woo investors, and you would be willing to do that. <laughs> like, that's the kind of personality this man has. Right. And it kind of makes sense given his background. Uh, his background is at first in his native Sweden. He ran a bunch of nightclubs that- uh, Okay. Through one circumstance or another that we might end up touching on later, uh, he ended up having to leave Sweden kind of dramatically. <laughs> oh! Yeah! And he settled in Monte Carlo, mm. where he decided to dabble in another business. Selling used luxury cars. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. A, a business that is definitely not shady, let me assure you. Nightclubs to used cars. That is an arc. Mm-hmm. An arc only gets better from there somehow. Now... He apparently was very good at this, but you know, once again, for reasons we're gonna get into in a bit, he eventually decided to quit his job and go back to Sweden. Once again, just rather suddenly. Mm. And he's gonna go there to do what he's born to do, Alex. That's make GPS devices. Now uh. yeah, kind of unexpected, but you know, your life's work it just sort of kind of pops up out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, okay. You can't you can't control your muse. No, you cannot. And so he founded a company called Eagle Eye Scandinavian in the year 2000. Now, Eagle Eye Scandinavian specialized in small portable GPS devices with like a simple black and white screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, From what I understand, they worked pretty well for the time, which, um, Alex, I don't know if you ever use like an old Garmin device or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, you you know, they uh, working is kind of air quotes. Yeah, they'll
1: probably get you there eventually.
0: Yeah, yeah. They they take usually like five to ten minutes to actually capture the satellites and triangulate. and Yeah. And then maybe they'll drive you into the ocean or maybe they'll drive you to the McDonald's. Either way, you're going somewhere. Yep. Now, apparently these devices worked very similar to that. And so they were kind of successful because of that. Mm-hmm. Now, he did that for about two years before Carl decided he needed to expand his company. Now, in order to do that, he would need a lot more money more than GPS devices only sold in Sweden would really give him. So he decided to do something that sounds incredibly stupid on paper, mm-hmm. but it's going to work out really well for him in the long run. He merged his company with another, not a GPS company, not even an electronics company, a Florida-based flooring company called Florida Decor.
2: Okay.
0: By... <laughs> yeah, run by a man named Michael Corander. And he renamed the combined Company into Tire Telematics. Now, what's really great about this is that his company is going to be bought by Floor Decor, but he's going to convince Corander mm-hmm. to actually make him, like, the head of the entire operation. Right. Okay. Because what's again, charismatic man. He's just able to yeah. pull out that kind of deal.
1: Yeah. I gotta wonder how their paths even crossed, but okay.
0: We might get into that a little bit. But we're gonna start start by talking a little bit about corander now Crander okay. is not really like the like main character in this at all but um mm. he, he is going to be the ceo of tiger telematics okay and it's important we touch on his history a bit because i think it also helps explain why carl is able to kind of convince him to do this because like he was just running a successful flooring business right yeah <laughs> So I'm going to quote this Wired article uh, that I found. I found a couple of very, very good articles, but this Wired article really gets in depth to it. So, quote, as a student in the 70s, uh, this is about Michael Carander, He joined a fundamentalist religious sect that would become known as the Endtimers. Timers. Uh, this is led by Charles Mead, which you may or may not have heard of. Uh, and if you haven't, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would go to jail. Okay, uh, yeah. Now, it was founded by Charles Mead in 1984, and the group, like, initially started in the Midwest, but they ended up relocating to Lake City, Florida. And As you do? This is kind of just a thing with sham religions. Uh, yeah, okay. they're going to basically take over Lake City, Florida, basically buy up a bunch of businesses, not mm. unlike, you know, Clearview and Scientology. Yeah, okay. Just yeah. something you do in Florida, apparently. Yeah. Now, Corander was still a member when he you know, basically form tired telematics. And he describes the group as like quite conservative with a very strict interpretation of scripture, uh, Christian scripture to be specific. Mm -hmm. Uh, Members reject newspapers as instruments of the devil. Uh, They refuse Uh, to own pets because animals can harbor demons. Oh. Yeah. Oh, did not know that. I I didn't either. I did not know that (laughs) Satan was into my dog, but that would explain the barking. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, yeah, this group ended up taking over, like, Lake City, and this is where Michael Crander started his business. Uh, as making a flooring company. hmm Yeah, and, you know, as they, like, basically started to form an army that was going to be an end-times army that would wrest all the wealth it could from the unbeliever, a.k.a. everybody else. Uh yeah, once again, this is going to fall apart because Charles Meade's going to go to jail for a lot right. of crimes. Right, yeah. I can imagine there would be many crimes. Mm-hmm. But it kind of gives you an impression of what kind of person Michael Corander is and somebody who could uh-huh. potentially be taken in by a particularly charismatic person. hmm yeah. Now, and what's again, Carl? Very charismatic, but why did he merge with this random Florida company? Because it does seem really silly, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out they were listed on the NASDAQ stock exchange. Now, you're probably going like, no, they weren't. And you would be sort of correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, that makes more sense. Because <laughs> you see, there's the NASDAQ, and then there's the NASDAQ. Uh-huh. Now, now, the NASDAQ is officially affiliated with the NASDAQ, but basically, what, it's the, what they do is they trade in what are called uh, pink slips, essentially, or pink sheets, actually. That's my apologies, uh-huh. pink sheets uh pink sheets is a trading environment where a company any company can basically be listed on this but your value is so low that you really aren't going to be put on like any major stock exchange so you go on Mm. this you sell essentially your stock for pennies and it's just a way for you know american companies to raise uh raise capital in a way that um would they would otherwise be unable to do now this has a couple advantages one it means you could just sell stock to whoever you want. for pretty much without pretty much doing a whole lot of work the second is these uh, pink sheets are not subjected to the same rules and regulations that the sec enforces on other more legitimate stocks <laughs> yeah so that's the reason why say michael Cranter could be convinced to purchase a random swedish gps company for seven million shares of stock in his own company and then just kind of put everyone at the swedish company in charge Something that would probably get some scrutiny from certain people.
1: Yeah, this sounds like the scam corner. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I put this? You know how with some video games, some online multiplayer games, um, mm-hmm. if they catch you cheating, they will just lock you to a server where only people who cheat go?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like this.
1: <laughs> yeah, this, this feels kind of like the stock exchange equivalent of that, where you just sort of, if you have a small business, you can just put it here and maybe crimes will happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it essentially is what that is. But here's the amazing thing about this. They're going to eventually mm-hmm. break out of that MMO server of, uh, of the pink sheets. Uh And they're going to start affecting a lot of other people around them. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's unfortunate. Oh, it's very, very unfortunate. But in order to do that, Freer's going to need some friends in order to help him out. Mm. And Alex, that is where our star comes into play. He brings in, among others, Stefan Erickson into the company as a co-director. Now, Alex, for those who knew Stefan, this might seem like an odd choice to help head a new technology startup. This is because by this point, Stefan, while unknown to the rest of the world, was incredibly well known to law enforcement in Sweden. Specifically, he's uh, a violent criminal. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Mm, violent, you say? Yeah, violent. Mm. Now, you see, Ericsson's criminal career is a very long and varied list. So we're going to just keep to the big ones. Mm-hmm. So for a short biography on him, he got to start at age 19 when known as and I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, Chuck Steff or Fat Steve. He got his first prison term for robbing a bank van, which not bad. That's pretty good for your first bank yep. ter- for your first yep. uh, term, That's you know, starting strong. Yeah. So he served a short prison sentence where he decided he needed to think bigger, and by bigger, I mean he decided to assemble a crew and start selling drugs. Ah. So he teamed up with two people um, who do are going to play a pretty prominent role in uh, mm Hmm. Though we're not going to talk about it too much because there's just so much. Uh-huh. Uh, the first is Johan Enhander, a large, muscular man with a shaved head who was nicknamed Torpedo by the police. And the more quiet and cerebral Peter Uff. Mm-hmm. These three would go on to form what was called the Uppsala Mafia, named for the Swedish city they all recited in. Now, when this is brought up to Freer about uh, Stefan's uh, criminal background, he claims he just did not know about this at all. And he uh-huh. also claims that Uppsala, the, this town that they're all from. Uh didn't have anything like a mafia or really organized crime, which eh, I mean could be true, could be not true. It's hard to say like I know I don't think of Sweden as a particularly you know, a company with like major crime organizations, but I also know if you have like a large enough city, you're gonna have some sort of criminal network that just goes into yeah. the territory,
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, they probably weren't like a proper crime family. Mm-hmm. But it does definitely sound like there were at least three guys coordinating crimes.
0: There were. And to be fair, they are going to do some pretty big crimes. Oh. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. In a way that you're like, oh, you really did, you didn't You did know about his background, huh? Okay, <laughs> Sure. Yeah. No, nah, sure. T- totally believable. So at first, they limited themselves to, like illegally selling cocaine and steroids, which Erickson uh-huh. did partake in. Uh Sure. But he got busted again in 1988 for doing this. He he spent a year in jail, and he decided, no, that's not quite enough. We have to go beyond the drugs. Mm -hmm. And upon his release, he decided that maybe I should get into kidnapping. (laughs) Ah. Yeah. So, yeah, he started, uh, you know, kidnapping and ranting off people, uh, got into counterfeiting, loan sharking, and just general fraud on top of, of course, selling drugs.
1: Okay. I still feel like the kidnapping is, like, a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, even
1: yeah. in comparison to those other things, like, abducting a human being is, like, really high up there.
0: Oh, yeah. And, and the thing is, is that um we're not going to be talking too much about his, like, later abductions, but he's just going to kind of keep doing that throughout his entire career. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Um, I feel like it's also, like, logistically one of the more challenging things you could go for. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, That that's usually something that, you, you know, you have to actually grab somebody and, like, drive them somewhere and then yeah, make sure you don't I mean, have any evidence anywhere from there and in between. Like, yeah, kidnapping seems difficult. It seems
1: pretty hard, like, even in comparison to counterfeiting money and selling cocaine.
0: hmm Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which, you know, just—it's kind of, like, going to be the theme with Stefan is that he he lives big. He goes big in pretty much every aspect he does. yeah. So it makes okay. sense that he's like, no, I should, I should kidnap people and you know ransom them off. That's what I should do, right? Okay. So, and to be fair, I, I guess when I say kidnapping ransom, he, he it's really more like he like like he'll like somebody will owe money and he'll kidnap them in order to make sure that they pay up. You're like, oh. hey, listen. So, it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that, I guess. As we'll I, get, into I this guess segment.
1: I don't quite understand how. <laughs> Kidnapping someone allows them to repay you money, unless they have
0: the money on them when you kidnap them. Oh, we'll get into a story about that in a second. Okay. So the police were very much like aware of this of his activities, mostly because uh-huh. Erickson really didn't try to hide it. Uh huh. Like he was a regular at the Uppsala nightclub scene. Often seen with beautiful women, driving fast cars while wearing like pinstripe suits and like ta- very openly talking about his latest escapades. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Now you think this would be enough to bring him down, despite you know it being obvious they use a ringleader. Mm-hmm. But it turns out he was very good at intimidating people, and so nobody was willing to testify against him, as this mm-hmm. Wired article specifies. Uh, quote: In one instance, according to prosecutors, Erickson and Enander terrorized a man named Ambar Hursan. It seemed Hersan's friend owed the gang 100,000 kroner, which is about 13,000 U.S. dollars in um, what, it, I think this would have been about 1990s money. Right. And, and one day, the two men pushed their way into the friend's apartment only to find Hersan there alone. When Hersan insisted he had no idea where his friend was, authorities say, Ericsson punched him four times in the face, knocking mm. out several teeth. Then retrieved the chef's knife from the kitchen and threatened to cut off his fingers. Hersan told the that he didn't give him any information, and Erickson, in response, jammed the barrel of a pistol down his throat. Eventually, Herson was dumped at a hospital, so frightened, he claimed, that he claimed he was injured in a car crash. Later, when forced to testify against Erickson, Hurston suddenly seemed confused about exactly what Erickson had done to him. End quote. All right, then. Yeah, gives you an idea of what kind of person this is. Yeah. Now... Luckily for police, Ericsson did eventually slip up when he decided to commit his most ambitious crime yet. Mm -hmm. He tried and almost succeeded in defrauding various Swedish banks of up to 25 million kroner, or about three and a half million U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. Now, he did this by, like, fraudulently withdrawing various amounts from accounts they did not own. The articles I read did not specify exactly how they went about this, but they somehow managed to get the money out. Unfortunately for Ericsson... He didn't do a good job about this and was arrested immediately. Ah. And was found with about uh, 500,000 kroner in his pockets. So it's like, "Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. They they got you on that one. They got him on that one. So he got convicted of gross fraud, counterfeiting, as well as some other unrelated crimes uh, such as assault. And he served a 10 year prison sentence and was paroled in 2000. So, how exactly did Carl Freer and Stefan Eriksson meet? Well, it might surprise you that Freer's himself is a bit of a criminal. No, no, it doesn't really. Oh, really? It doesn't? No. <laughs> the man who had to suddenly leave Sweden <laughs> under suspicious circumstances and then suddenly leave Monte Carlo under suspicious circumstances is a criminal? Who would know? Hmm. It appears that they had, like, initially met in the 90s because, you know, Erickson would frequent the nightclubs that Freer ran in Uppsala. Now, after this ran his course and Freer went to Monte Carlo to sell luxury cars, he ran into a bit of trouble because, you see, in 1999, he got in trouble for buying four luxury cars with bad checks. Uh, now, well, specifically, what would happen is he would buy the cars and he would cancel the checks, which mm. is fraud. You can't do that. Right. Now, this next part is alleged because it comes from a source that is only referred to as James. Uh, he requested to remain anonymous for one of the various articles that I uh, I took uh, this information from.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: in, and the reason he did so is from fear of retribution from Stefan Eriksson. So just mm. want to put this out. This is the only primary source we have for this. But it kind of it kind of tracks, and it's the only thing I've read about a particular connection that Freer and Eriksson had before Gizmondo. So the story goes is that Freer was arrested and charged for this little scheme. And prosecutors opened up an investigation to see if the cars he was trying to buy were indeed deed stolen. Because it turns out they knew of his connections to Erickson, and Erickson himself dabbled in selling stolen vehicles. Now, this supposedly this investigation got back to Erickson, who was still in jail at the time, and he sent somebody to go shut Carl up. Except Carl, being a very smooth man, instead turned it around them all, on them <laughs> and got himself a business meeting with Erickson, <laughs> which is amazing.
1: That's incredible. Oh yeah. my god.
0: Yeah. Carl's amazing. I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of rooting through, for Carl through this entire story. until all the crimes he commits. Yeah. So this is, this is what alleged, like, eventually led to Freer bringing Erickson on board to Tiger Telematics. So Erickson joins. He brings along his fellow Uppsala Mafia cohorts, uh, Johan and Hander, who like, was head of security, and Peter Oof, who's just like a director. Mm-hmm. And Erickson's official role is going to be very strange. He is there to help provide Tiger Telematics with strategic introductions to high-profile car racing contacts. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, might seem a bit insane if you're a newly formed electronics company that, Mm -hmm. you know, hadn't really released anything. But, hey, you know, I got to get advertised somehow, I guess. And why not a race car?
1: Yeah. um, (laughs) They're going to sell GPSs to car racers? no
0: (laughs) it's gonna be well for um Carl and Stefan it's gonna be cool as hell okay because Mondo it's gonna be dumb and we're gonna get into that in a second okay but first they need to actually create a product to attract investors right and Carl's gonna start with something very dumb Alex how do you feel about kids do you feel like they need to like be like closely watched and monitored uh a lot of the time yeah how about like all the time um Define all the time. 24-7. Probably overkill. Well, good news. <laughs> well, not for you, I guess, but for, for yeah. others. Tiger Telematics has a solution. It's a tracker that connects a GPS that a child will carry around with them that parents can check in with another device to see what they're up to and where they're at. Hmm. I feel
1: like I remember this one. Hmm. Do you think there's some flaws with this Alex? Um will the child not
0: just like throw it away? Yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of the issue with this product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the problem is that the child is not going to just create, carry a device on it that tracks his every movement. The child's <laughs> like and not even like willingly. The child's just going to set it down somewhere and walk off. Right. I, yeah. That's how kids are. They're forgetful. <laughs> They, you compare that with all the parents just being like, I, this seems a little Orwellian. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Surprise you that I believe somebody at Tiger Telematics was like, Carl, I don't think we could do this. <laughs> now, Carl defends he His reasoning was that there was like a couple of like high profile murders in like 2002 called the SOAB murders that involved uh-huh. a couple of children. And he's like, right. hey, you know, this is a way to prevent that. And it's like, well, no, no. because those kids, those kids still got murdered.
1: I don't and- think that was also the murderers would have just thrown the trackers away.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like like not getting into the details about the Soha murders, but the way they happened, they it was kind of a bang bang sort of thing. Right. <laughs> so the, no child tracker is going to was going to help there. So it's like n- no, this is not going to work. <laughs> but Carl's not going to drop this idea. Like Okay. He decides instead, well, what if it's a gaming device? Which is admittedly a little smarter. Sure, yeah. So he, he comes in with the, the Game Track, spelled Game and then T-R-A-C, a handheld device that plays games and also tracks you at every living moment. Okay, no. No,
1: that's not smarter. No, that's dumb. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although to be fair, we, we kind of walk around with devices that do that nowadays.
1: We do, yeah. But <sighs> it's not a selling
2: point. It is I not, suppose. No.
1: And uh it's going to be really hard to get Activision to develop games exclusive for your kid tracker.
0: Yeah, it, there's probably some optics around there that's going to be difficult to uh, overcome, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, it's with this though that the idea of a child tracker finally died. Okay. Because instead, Carl became obsessed with the idea of making a handheld video game system that was much more than that. Mm-hmm. What if they made the sexiest, sleekest device that you could just do anything with? Not only play games, but you could watch movies, you could take pictures, listen to music. And yes, of course, it would have some sort of GPS functionality so the machine could track you at every living moment. Because, uh-huh. you know, that's the bread and butter. Right, sure. And Alex, this is where the Gizmondo was born. Now, we'll get into the exact capabilities here in a second, but Mm -hmm. before we get started, you got to raise money for this device. Sure. So Carl began going around to various investment firms in order to raise money. And it's difficult to get a beat on exactly how much money they raised, but it does appear to be a significant amount. Uh, Now, this is based upon two things I found out. Mm. One is the stock price. The stock price of Tiger Telematics when it was formed in 2003 was 53 cents. Okay. In 2005, it's going to be $32.50. Wow. Now, I'm going to presume, based upon how much stock, we're going to get into how much stock that Stefan Erickson got, I'm going to assume that the $7 million floor decor era stocks are still available, mm. which would mean the company would have been valued at around $3.7 in 2003, and in 2005, they would have been worth about $227 million. A lot of money. A lot, a lot of, of money. Yep. And this is going to track with how much money they are going to end up losing between 2004 and 2005, which is about $300 million. <laughs> all right. Yep. That that all checks out. <laughs> yeah. And Alex, you're probably wondering how exactly did he go about raising this money? Mm-hmm. Now, the first is obvious. Carl is a very, very charismatic person who throws right. really, really cool parties. Parties that we're going to get into a little bit later. Okay. Uh, So there's partially that. Um, He's just very good at convincing people. The second is that, well, he may have padded his resume a little bit. Ah. So there was an electronics company that was out around this time. I think it was like a virtual reality firm or something somewhere that was getting a lot of hype in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was called like VXtronics. And he claimed that he was the founder of a company called VXtronics. (laughs) As, uh-huh. as in V-E-E-E and then Xtronics. <laughs> right. And so he listed that. Yeah, he did that. And he also listed he was part of like some prominent London-based like uh, firms and whatnot, like investment firms that he uh-huh. told it was not. Yeah. And probably my favorite thing, though, is when people are like, well, what's your like video game cred and whatnot? Do you – have you like worked in the video game industry? It's like, well, no, but I have a prominent uh, contact in the video game industry. And he had the head of the Xbox division's, like, signature on a piece of paper that said (laughs) they they had signed a deal with Gizmondo that Uh he forged.
1: He forged that signature. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know.
1: Mild fraud. So in the process of raising some about $300 million, uh, did any of those people go to Microsoft and were like, hey... So did you sign this
0: paper? Absolutely not. Oh, Alex, this is investment firms. They don't right. do homework. Yep,
1: no, turn to the Millennium Investment Firms. What a time to be alive and
0: rich. <laughs> and still currently living, if Theranos is anything to say. About yeah. It. <laughs> Why do you research? This thing sounds exciting. Yes, of course, have all the money. Oh no, you're failing? Well I can't look bad. Have more money. <laughs> uh the tale of every company in silicon valley it's great pretty much I, honestly this just shows how much of like a pioneer gizmondo it really is yeah yeah
1: kind of they were like just 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 lie
0: yeah they're just no like, one's gonna sh-. ask questions they aren't and if they do and they find out that oh i just gave a bunch of money to like fraudsters like well i don't want that to get out it's gonna right. look bad yeah it they'll just double down it's it's perfect <laughs> With all this money, Tiger Telematics got to work on developing the Gizmondo. But what exactly is this device? Mm -hmm. So, Alex, the Gizmondo is an all-in-one gaming device meant to be a direct competitor in terms of power and feature sets to the Nintendo DS and Sony's PlayStation Portable. Okay. Uh, The plan... Now, DS was released in 2004, and the PlayStation Portable was released in 2005. It was capable of, at the time, cutting-edge 3D graphics uh, that would... That was uh, controlled via four face buttons and two shoulder tick triggers and a D-pad. In fact, I'm going to just get a picture of the Gizmondo real quick and send it to you. Okay. Uh, Just to give you an idea of how this thing even looks. Because it's, let me put it this way, it's not exactly a sexy looking.
1: Yeah, also I feel like if they were going to lean into the cutting edge and have 3D graphics and all that, they would want to maybe look into an analog stick of some sort.
0: Yeah, you you would think so. Like go with like either the nub pad that like the mm-hmm. PlayStation Portable did, or I guess, well, do what Nintendo did and be like, how about we use the the, the touch screen? Yeah, which not a good decision, but hey, you know they try. All right, there you go. Yeah, okay. take a take a look at that baby.
1: Yeah, let's take a look. Oh my.
0: Yeah, not exactly a pretty device
1: no uh it 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 looks like an old gps
0: device it it kind of does yeah um and then the model you're looking at is technically a revision that uses a rubber shell uh instead of just mm. like a kind of a, a stainless steel like looking shell uh-huh but they're both essentially the same right right uh, yeah uh so yeah, not exactly the coolest looking device. My understanding, though, is that it actually was a pretty responsive device, for, as far as controls were concerned. Like, apparently the the shoulder triggers were good, the mm. the buttons were actually had a, like good response to them. D pad was good. Okay. So apparently they actually put some good work in actually making it control well mm. for what it's worth. Now, so it had all these, and it and it also, of course, had multimedia playback capability. So it could play most major video and audio formats available at the time. Uh, you uh-huh. would load them up uh, either. By connect- connecting it directly to like a Windows compatible computer or using an SD card. Okay. Uh, it could receive text, but it could not do calls via SIM card. And in mm. fact, it required a SIM card to even work. Huh. Uh, yeah. Uh, had a digital camera, which was kind of terrible. Right. Yeah.
2: And Makes was promised, sense.
0: Yeah, and it was promised to have fully functioning GPS capabilities and an app store at launch. Uh, in fact, the GPS functionality was going to be core for at least one of the versions that Gizmodo was going to be released. Uh, now, all this for $400, Alex.
1: Yeah. Uh, an
0: app store, you say? An app store, yes. Uh, no idea what th- was going to be on that app store because it never came out. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Makes sense. But, you know, it makes sense. You know, like an app store, like, well ahead of its time. You could throw stuff on there, download over the internet. Sure. Cool. Yeah um they don't, don't i don't know if it actually had like wi-fi capability so yeah i mean, i guess you could use the sim card to connect but i
1: i guess yeah if
0: <laughs> if
1: you wanted to oh god downloading yeah. over c- cellular data pre
0: pre 3g yeah yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm sure it'd go well i'm sure it would just be perfect so Alex, do you think four hundred dollars is too much for a portable gaming system?
1: It's a lot. Um It is. That's that's way more that uh, Xboxes and GameCubes and PS3s retailed for three hundred, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Uh you are correct, and I believe the um I believe the Nintendo DS was like was it two hundred or two hundred fifty dollars around Something this Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh needless to say, uh, given that this was supposed to be a direct competitor to that, not exactly a good look. No, not, not great. But Alex, don't worry. I got you covered. Uh-huh. Because Gizmondo has a version that's $250 called the Smart Ads version. Uh-oh. Yes, right? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> now, this version, which I bet is what excited quite a few investors, subsidized the price by making it so that while the device was used, every once in a while, it would stop to show you an ad for, say, Sprite or some other product. It would then use the GPS functionality to show you your location and then give you directions to the nearest location where you could buy said product. It sounds awful. How did that go over with consumers? Well, it was never activated. <laughs> so if you bought the $250 Smart Ads version, congratulations, you just got a free discount. Nice. Yeah, worked out pretty well. But yeah, um, yeah I had no idea like how often that function would like kick in or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But um, there is, like, a demo in the game that shows, like, how it would work um, on the game in the console and when you would buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, like, very, very slow. It's very, mm. very slow. So I, I imagine it would be very annoying. Yeah. So, Alex, the money has been raised. The product is in development. Mm-hmm. It's now time to do some advertisement and build hype for this exciting new product.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you you gotta get some uh you gotta get some game developers on board.
0: Mm-hmm. That you do. That you do. So naturally, the first thing you need to do, Alex, is open mm-hmm. an England-based subsidiary. Huh? Yeah. Oh yeah, no, you need to have international reach. sure. Yeah, so they're gonna open up a UK-based subsidiary called Ismondo Europe. Okay. Now, I'm gonna just Clarify this going forward, I'm going to be using the word Gizmondo a lot, usually mm-hmm. to refer to the company, because in a lot of their filings and and uh out of the they're gonna be operating a lot out of their European location, which is called Gizmondo Europe. Mm-hmm. A lot of the news stories and whatnot are gonna be just referring to the company as Gizmondo. Okay. Uh, even though Gizmondo Europe is also supposed to be the subsidiary, uh, Carl and Stefan are gonna move there and basically run everything from there. <laughs> so it yeah. might as well be the real company at this point. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. So this opens up in 2003 using a large building in Farnborough, which is a small town located out about like 40 miles outside of London City Center.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, now, Gizmodo Europe was ostensibly founded once again for international marketing of their products and to lead development of the Gizmodo itself. But honestly, it just seems as likely that Carl and Stefan wanted to live near London and enjoy the glitz and glamour that went along with that as opposed to, well, northern Florida. Right. Fair. Yeah. Which I can't blame them. Yeah. No, totally. I'm totally with them on that. Now, once established, they got started developing and promoting the product. And by developing and promoting, I mean, Carl and Stefan started spending and grifting an obscene amount of money. (laughs) Oh, my God, Alex. So much. Oh, man. And I literally now have, like, I think, two or three pages that are literally just going into the various ways they have spent money. Because they are going to get ambitious with this. So let's talk about how they pissed away in this amount of money. Yes, let's do. So to start, this is easily the most money either of these men ever had. And Carl was convinced that the best way to market the Gizmondo was to make it the sexiest object imaginable. And for him, that was like, we need to host, like, high-profile parties and events. We need to have sexy women around. We need to do all these sort of things to give notoriety to our product. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. He defended that uh, using that mindset in in an interview he gave to Eurogamer after all this went down. Uh-huh. So Carl and Stefan began hosting a bunch of high-profile parties, uh, both at their private residences in London. Because, of course, they live in London. Uh Uh-huh or at the home of venture capitalist Joe Martin, who was one of the wealthiest men in London and a huge investor in Tiger Telematics. So there, they would give gifts of, like, luxury watches, uh, spend a ludicrous amount of money on bottles of alcohol, and flatter potential investors with beautiful women. Women which, suspiciously, Carl and Stefan couldn't seem to run out of. Now, the reason why they couldn't run out of women is because... As soon as Gizmondo Europe was formed, Mm -hmm. they bought a 75% stake in a London-based modeling agency called ISIS. Okay, sure. Yeah, which meant, hey, guess what? We are guaranteed beautiful women that we can just put at any event. Now, I should note that apparently, at least for Carl and Stefan, nothing untoward happened towards these women. Uh, They weren't pressured into sex or anything like that. Uh, Okay. Uh, they were described as very professional towards them, but still. Right, still. yeah. Not not amoral, just weird. Just weird, yes. So, they were known for a short time for their notorious and kind of out-of-control parties. And, to be honest, they sound kind of fun. Mm. So, speaking of Stefan, he was, if you remember, brought on to help foster relations with racing companies. Something every video game company needs.
1: Yeah, you know, that statement is less facetious than it should be.
0: Yeah, it kind of is. (laughs) Kind of is. (laughs) Well, I got to give credits to Stefan. He actually came through on his job. He managed to secure a sponsorship in 2004 with the Jordan Grand Prix, which is a racing company, not a race. Right. Okay. uh, Who fielded cars in various competitions, such as Formula One and the 24 Hours at Le Mans. Now, this did get their name on a race car, but more importantly to Carl and Stefan, it gave them cool perks. Mm-hmm. Now, one of these perks was having a canary yellow Formula One car, valued at about $5 million, that was placed in their main entryway of their Farmborough headquarters. Why? Because it's cool. Yeah, okay. The other is in 2005, Stefan Erickson was allowed to race in the 24 hours of Le Mans, where he arrived, first off, in a black Ferrari Enzo. Not the same one he wrecked. Okay. And he raced in a Ferrari 360 Modena GTC. Uh he did not finish. No. Yeah, and it's un Yeah, and it's unknown if uh any of these helped promote the product, but it sounds like they had fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, I imagine he had a lot of fun.
0: Mm hmm. Oh, and speaking of having fun in cars, these guys loved cars, Alex. Oh uh-huh. my god, they love cars. Yeah. Carlos Stefan never went anywhere in a let me tell you. Yeah, I bet. Now. If they weren't driving Ferrari, they were arriving in, like, a Rolls or something similar. It was, like, to the point that I almost bet they thought a Porsche was beneath them. Mm, yeah. Now, there, one employee, like had, an, like, had a story about how they arrived at the parking lot one day, and they saw a bunch of luxury cars lined up, and it included, like, a Mercedes McLaurin, a Rolls-Royce Phantom, a Ferrari Enzo, and a Maybach. It, it should be pointed out that the Enzo, of which only 400 were made— Mother Europe was known to be in possession of two of them. (laughs) A not statistically insignificant amount of a certain car. (laughs) Yep. Now, Carl, when he was asked about this by Eurogamer, noted that, well, a lot of this was exaggerated. And that some of the vehicles that were there weren't his or company cars, but they were actually owned by staff, which Mm -hmm. is a lie. (laughs) Yeah. Although, to be fair, he's also not going to be wrong about the company cars, but we'll get into that in a bit. (laughs) Now, Alex, perhaps the biggest and most ill-advised expense the company made, however, was the opening of a flagship store on London's Regent Street. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Regent Street at all, but it's one of London's premier shopping districts, and like it's home to one of the first Apple stores, for instance. Okay. Uh, Microsoft like, opened up a, like, a store on Regent Street in 2017, mm. and then it closed it two years later when he decided, actually, we don't want to have flagship stores at all. Yeah, that sounds right. Mm-hmm. Now... This store was dedicated to doing one thing, Alec, mm-hmm. and that was selling to Gizmondo, a product not yet in stores, but also the only product this company even had. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Does that, seem like a, does that seem like a bad idea to open up a flagship store in 2004 when your product doesn't come out in 2005 and you have yeah, no other products? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, especially on Regent Street. Yeah, it seems like a bad idea. This store was expensive not only in its rent. But what was installed in the store itself, because of course he had to be extra about this. Right, of course. As this article from The Drive describes, quote, In 2004, Gizmondo opened a high-profile flagship store on London's exclusive Regent Street. They spared no expense. The rent was $300,000 a year, and the store was built to entertain. Hot-to-bottom black marble, $750,000 worth of state-of-the-art 3D TVs. 48,000 US dollars of Bang and Olsen phones and cameras, numerous bars, reasons, Uh and a sound system worthy of a mega club. Even the toilets were lined with Sorvosky crystals. End quote. Why the toilets? I don't understand that. Like, that line actually almost makes (laughs) me feel like this is, like, maybe a little exaggerated. Because that seems, like, even for me, that seems like a bit uh-huh. much. Like, not out of character, certainly.
1: Right, no, but just like, w- w- why? But
0: why? Yeah, why?
1: right?
0: Yeah, it's it's all very, very strange. And like, photos I've seen of this location do, like, check out for like, the, the black marble that was there, the TVs and whatnot. So mm. like, like, I don't have any reason to necessarily not please, but yeah. Now, if all of this seems like a terrible way to market a new portable, well, Carl didn't see it that way as he would later explain to Eurogamer, quote, this is a big money business. Just to put things in perspective, we developed a Gizmondo at a third of the cost of what Nokia spent on the N-Gage. Start looking through the- (laughs) One was also trying to be a cell phone, but we'll ignore that part. Start looking through the accounts of Sony and Nintendo, and you'll find the money we spent on development is chicken feed. That's not necessarily true in Nintendo's case either, but that's (laughs) um, that's for other stories. That's another story. You can't go in half-hearted. The plan was obviously that they were going to take this product and launch it on a worldwide platform. To do that, we had to spend what we needed to spend on the marketing side to make ourselves heard. End quote. Alex, you want to know what are some of these necessary marketing costs to also include? I do. Uh buying a decommissioned Tomahawk cruise missile. Why? The Tomahawk cruise missile, by the way, can hold a nuclear weapon on board, by the way, a nuclear warhead. Right, yeah. Uh, they painted it with the Nintendo and Sony logos on the tip of it and proudly displayed it in front of their headquarters. Uh, Alex, I know you're probably not familiar with Farmborough at all, but um, it's home of one of the first RAF bases, Royal Air Force bases. Mmm. Do you think they were happy about a new a Tomahawk missile just being displayed prominently very close to their base? Probably, probably not super jazzed. No, no. Literally a day after they installed it. They literally got contacted by the military and they got rolled up on <laughs> <laughs> wanting to know, why do you have a why do you have a nuclear cruise missile? <laughs> How did you get this? <laughs> mm. From what I understand, um, they explained it and it was expected and they were like, OK, fine, whatever. You can have your stupid missile, you idiots. Right. But still, it's like this is not this is not necessary. This is nope. not necessary. Nope. This, of course, Alex, though, doesn't get into the financial compensation that Freer and Erickson themselves received. Mm. Now, Carl claims that Gizmondo execs did not receive any compensation in 2003. Uh This appears to be mostly true, but they most certainly did in 2004. Right. Now, in 2004, Freer himself was awarded a compensation package totaling about $2.2 million. Uh, This did not include his wife earning $174,000 from Gizmondo for unexplained consultancy services. (laughs) Uh, which might not seem like an egregious amount, mind you, until we remember that he's also a majority sh- uh, shareholder in the company. Right. So he's got a lot of money. Right. There's enough for him to buy a Hampshire estate and fill it with luxury cars and motorcycles. That being said, we don't have too much more about his financial picture overall. Uh, he's eventually going to buy a yacht, so we know that much. But beyond that, that's about as much as we know. Okay. Erickson, on the other Erickson, on the other hand, of course we know a lot more. Yeah. He- <laughs> Why would he t- keep anything secret? Why would he be? In 2004, he earned roughly about $867,000 worth of uh, salary. Uh, this included uh, $1.3 million in bonuses. And he also had an automobile allowance of about $104,000. $100, uh-huh. Now, the real valuable thing, though, is that when he was brought on board, he was gifted 884000 1,000 shares of Gizmondo's stock. Now, while he held on all of this through 2005 when it was at its peak value, but if he did, that would be a maximum value of over $28 million. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's safe to assume that Freer had a similar amount, if not more. But Alex, it wouldn't be enough to legally earn $28 million. <sighs> no, of course it wouldn't. Oh, you have to grift as well. Mm-hmm. And this gets into the final way Gizmondo spent a ridiculous amount of money. Outlight, outright grift in scams that personally benefited Ericsson and Freer. Uh-huh. So, Alex, obviously the Gizmondo needs games. Sure. So they contracted out to numerous video game companies. Now, some of these were legit. Like, for instance, EA and Ubisoft actually released games. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know the financial side for Ubisoft, but EA was paid $5 million to port uh, FIFA. Okay. And it was actually a decent version, all told. Hmm. Uh, um but they also contracted other indie developers. First was Northern Lights, which received a three and a half million dollar contract to develop games. but uh, it was later found out the company was uh, co-owned by Freer and Ericsson. Okay. And this was not disclosed. Right. Yes. Which is illegal. That's yeah, that's illegal. The second was a studio named Game Factory Publishing. They received a $4 million contract and was later found to be owned by a friend of Freer's. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as far as I know, neither company would deliver a game for the Gizmondo, but this wasn't the only, like, weird, like, shell companies that would just strangely get Gizmondo money and then later be found to be owned by either Freer or Ericsson or both. Uh Uh-huh. This is just going to be a recurring theme. Yeah. So they just were using that to kind of launder money out, uh... I guess spoiler alert that uh 300 million dollars that they lost 150 million of that is unaccounted for.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. Where could Wonder it why? be? Where could it be? So Alex, as 2004 ended, the Gizmondo's launch date of March 2005 was fast approaching. Now, keeping in the spirit of the company, Beer decided he had to go all out with a huge launch party. Held at the Park Lane Hotel in London. And this seems like a pretty rad party. So mm-hmm. Cristal Champagne was given out as journalists mingled with celebrities such as Vern Troyer, a.k.a. the man who played Mini-Me. Mm. And Gizmondo's staff were also there as well, just kind of being very confused, I'm sure. Yeah, probably. Recording artist Pharrell Williams and Buster Ryan for both flown <laughs> from the United States. <laughs> okay. And, and Sting from the police gave a performance. Sure. Sting might as well be there. He might as well. There's a really fun, um, there's a really fun anecdote that's from uh, one of the employees where they talk about how, like, he came on board and, like, he was talking about how they had to, like, save the rainforest and whatnot. Uh-huh. And basically everyone was like, God, shut up, Steve. <laughs> and he started just, you know, going through his, like, catalog from his time at the police. And he was right. like, they're like, oh, man, yeah, he's great. Man, he's so good. So all of this was hosted by Tom Green. And I always mispronounce your name. Uh, Danny Minogue. Now, one particularly mem- memorable scene occurred when Tom Green, boasting about how indestructible the Gizmodo device was, slammed it into the ground and shattered it into pieces, <laughs> leaving him and the entire party in stunned silence. While Danny, like, basically cleaned up everything. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's good. It's good. On March 19th, 2005, the Gizmodo launched in Europe at their flagship store on Regent Street high-end department stores such as John Lewis and online retailers. On launch day, celebrities were paraded into the store to buy their devices, after which the public was let in to buy the device. And by public, I mean a few journalists who could not get a hold of a device. Mm. Now, once the public also went in, they could not get one either, because despite considerable hype, as well as a lot of buzz, that consumers were dying for the product, there were no long lines at the store for the device. Yet despite this, it also couldn't be found. This is because, Alex, the device's mm-hmm. hype, popularity, and even stock was unsurprisingly artificially built by Gizmondo. Uh-huh. So what happened here is kind of a multi-step process. Mm-hmm. What happens that Freer and Gizmondo had falsely portrayed a machine as being heavily desired by the public at large. Now, they did this by a couple of things. Uh, first, obviously, they had a marketing company that just built-up hype and whatnot uh, sure. they had they had like a deal with mtv europe that uh, gonna come back to bite in the butt later <laughs> but they also duped journalists and retailers in a way that's kind of bonkers so they assembled a fake call center at their headquarters at Farnsboro, mm-hmm. and this 10-person team was put in a room with large windows so journalists could like see inside and it gave the appearance that they were fielding calls for the gizmodo device Given that they were constantly on the phone, it made it seem like there was a lot of interest, and so it was reported as such. What really happened, though, is that this 10-person team was calling retailers posing as customers, either asking if the Gizmondo was in stock or demanding they try to get it in stock. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So you can see what's happening here, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, like the feedback loop that's like occurring. Now, here's the thing, though. Retailers really didn't bite on this. And even if they did, it wouldn't have mattered because it's just not enough inventory. Right. Now, I don't know exactly why there wasn't enough inventory, but Eurogamer reports that the device was hard to find in their flagship store, much less anywhere else that was supposedly in available at retail. And given the device was either available either in like retail catalogs or bizarrely high-end department stores,
1: uh-huh. yeah. there was
0: only a f- – Yeah, there's only a few places to look in the first place, so it's very easy for journalists to figure out. Okay, there's just there's just no inventory. There's none.
1: They 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 just didn't make any.
0: Yeah, and like this was somewhat deliberate to give the impression of scarcity due to popularity, right? But also had it also had the issue of no one buying the device, which is a problem when you're a company trying to make money, right? And
1: you only have one product. Yeah, which you are artificially creating scarcity
0: of. Yes. But here's the thing, Alex, and lead up to Gizmondo's U.S. launch in October, the idea was that the supply issues would be so sorted out. And but even by the time like this launch date was coming around, people still weren't buying the device.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And while hype was largely artificially built, there were people who did legitimately want this. Right. So it begs the question, why wasn't anyone buying it? Alex, would you believe it's because Carl Freer can't shut his mouth? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would. Kind of goes without saying at this point. So, in the lead up to the launch of the Gizmondo, Greer had big news to announce to the board of directors. They were working on a new device. What? Very ambitious, I know. This device would have an improved battery life and a new wider screen in response to Sony's PSP. Or PlayStation Portable. Uh Uh-huh. On top of that, the designs showed off had very clear Xbox branding on it. These, the plan was to have this device come out either late 2005 or early 2006. Uh, now, uh, there are quite... Yeah, yeah, you, you seem confused by this. Mm-hmm. Now, there are quite a few members of the exec team who thought this was an absolutely terrible idea. As obviously, no one was going to buy the initial Gizmondo if the superior version was right around the corner. Yeah. Yeah, that seems, uh, that seems reasonable to believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once this product was announced to the public, their fears were realized when people just stayed away. Now, the problem, of course, was only compounded by reports of the first run of Gizmondo's being kind of terrible machines. Right. Uh, Had few games worthwhile for the system. Uh, GPS functionality barely worked. Like, you literally, like, there's a lot of reports of, like, people buying the device or testing it out in a Gizmondo store, and, like, the the GPS not working, so they had to, like, walk outside and hold it up in order to sync. Uh-huh. Not a good look. No. So nobody bought the device and they decided to wait for the better one, mm-hmm. which, spoiler alert, did not exist. Yeah. It basically existed on a napkin. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. It was not in production. It would never be in production. Carl just announced it to generate hype. But in turn, he might have simply put the final nail in its coffin.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the device came out. Some games came out for it, uh, the most prominent being Sticky Balls, uh, a game that is apparently good. Okay, uh, sure. Yeah, it's a mix of, like, Billiards and uh, the puzzle game bu- uh, Busta Move, in okay. a Move. Okay. Yeah, okay. But beyond that, there just wasn't really anything with it. And once it launched into the U.S. in October, it wasn't really any better. Mostly because you couldn't buy it anywhere, once again. Right. Except at, like, mall kiosks. Ooh. Which is a. M- which is amazing to me, given that they were like, we want this to be the sexiest device ever. We have this store on Regent Street. Right. And then the U.S. is like, oh, yeah, man, if you go to the Sutherland Park Mall, here's a little kiosk. Right. It's, it's right next to the other kiosk that, has, that sells all the stupid keychains that are knockoffs of, like, Sonic characters. It's, it's wonderful.
1: People, people will definitely spend $400 at a mall
0: kiosk. Absolutely. All this. All the time. Yeah, See, I, that's their favorite
1: place to spend four hundred dollars.
0: As an aside, I almost did once spend a hundred dollars on a copy of Kirby's Dreamland Three Animal Kiosk. Okay,
1: well that I mean that's fair. What, what
0: can you say about that? That's Kirby Three. Yeah, that's that's that. That's just good investment there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, all of this is going down, and you know it, this would be bad enough for Freer and Erikson to probably make their leave. But it actually isn't what's going to cause them to decide to jump ship. Uh-huh. Because in the lead-up to the launch of the Gizmondo in the United States, Freer and Erickson caught wind that an article was about to drop in a Swedish tabloid, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Afton Beldit, that basically detailed the entirety of Erickson's criminal career.
1: Ah, uh, there it is.
0: Yeah. And so the second these two heard about this article, they kind of saw the writing on the wall and immediately <laughs> submitted a resignations to Gizmondo. So this took Michael Corander by surprise because at this point, Reer and Erickson had moved to Los Angeles to support the Gizmondo's soon-to-be-equally disastrous launch in the United States
2: mm-hmm.
0: to the point where they bought like individual Bel Air mansions because, of course, it was going to oh. be there or Malibu. Right. And um, like buying yachts and doing all sorts of stuff. And that was like the general accepted idea that that's the reason why they moved out there. But uh, as this Wired article makes clear, this and the resignation's Might have been because of a different reason. (laughs) Maybe even separate from this news article. Quote, Following such a public debacle, most executives would be distraught, but Freer and Erickson had moved to Los Angeles in anticipation of Gizmondo's U.S. launch. And by the time the company shut down, both were ensconced in multi-million dollar Bel Air mansions. What's more, Freer, it seemed, was getting into a new venture. Uh, Editor's note, of course he is. (laughs) He began financing a startup called Zero Mobile which was staffed in part with former Gizmondo employees. This company would not take aim at Sony and Nintendo, but at Verizon Wireless and T-Mobile. Like Tiger Telematics before it, Zero would be built around a single technology, but this time a cell phone advertising system similar to one designed for the Gizmondo. Mm -hmm. And just like Tiger, the new firm would be financed by taking over a company with an over-the-counter listing. In this case, a company called Desi TV. I really wish I had time to look into (laughs) Renamed it and then selling off the newly created shares. End quote. So they basically just decided to redo the scam. Right, yes, do it again. Yeah, which Grifter 101. Yep. Uh, As far as I know, this did not take off. Uh, There is a a mobile company that is called Zero, but it's Mm -hmm. New Zealand based and seems to have no relation at all. Although, oddly enough, they were formed in 2005, which did throw me off. Yep. Okay. Regardless of all this, with the failure of the Gizmondo in both Europe and the United States, it was all but assured the company would go out of business sooner rather than later. And this, of course, was not helped by the fact that they were almost immediately sued soon after the public hit the market, mostly because of unpaid bills. Right. Uh, that deal with MTV uh, Europe that I mentioned earlier, uh, where they intentionally – but they, basically what they did is they had an advertisement deal with them where they would talk about the Gizmondo and then they would pay for advertisements. Mm-hmm. Well, they got MTV to talk about them, uh-huh. and then they canceled the deal at the last minute. Uh huh. So they got sued over that. Yeah. The Jordan Grand Prix sued them for unpaid bills, and even their advertising company, uh, Ugly, I believe is how you pronounce it, sued them for much of the same. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And that is not counting investors who sued them and everything. A lot of people sue them. Yep. His Mondo shares dropped to a low of seven dollars per share. And in January 2006, both Gizmondo Europe and Tiger Telematics declared bankruptcy. Now, Alex, this should be the end of the story in some ways. You would think. Yeah, you would think. And it should have gone down as kind of a weird story that wasn't really known to the wider world. Except, well, Stefan Erickson decided to destroy an incredibly rare car shortly right. after this. Right, yes. And that's where we get back to the start. So to catch everyone up. On February 21st, Stefan Eriksson was found on the side of the road with split lip after, after destroying a Ferrari Enzo. After being found by sheriff's deputies, uh, he claimed he wasn't a driver, but rather his friend, Diedrich. He was the driver, and he fled into the hills. What was more perplexing, however, was that a second man was present on the scene. An Irishman by the name of Trevor Carney Now, Trevor... Oh, Trevor has a good story. <laughs> he claims he's a good Samaritan who stopped to help out the two men involved in the crash. He was driving with a friend in a Mercedes, and they saw him, and he got out to check out on him. Mm-hmm. But after he got out, his friend, who's a jerk, drove off, leaving him without a car stranded on the highway I at like 3 in the morning. Uh-huh. Totally normal behavior. Yeah, that's what friends do. Yeah. Now, Trevor claims he then stopped another car, borrowed his cell phone, and called the police. So at this point, it should be pretty obvious that Erickson was obviously the driver. There was no Dietrich, and Trevor was actually the passenger of the Ferrari. Uh But it somehow gets stranger. After the sheriff's administered a breathalyzer that showed that Erickson was under the influence of alcohol, uh, he was 0.09, and the legal limit in the state of California Mm
2: is
0: 0.08. Erickson decides he needs to get out of this (laughs) because this is a DUI. Right. So he flashes a fancy-looking badge and claims he's part of a police anti-terrorism force. Oh, no. Oh, I bet you didn't think this was going to go this direction, did you? Oh,
1: no. That's too big,
0: man. Oh, it's too big. That's too big a lie. Oh, it gets gets better, because here's the thing, Alex. Mm -hmm. It's going to work at least briefly. (laughs) Uh Because you see, the police there are not buying this, but soon a black SUV arrives, and two men pop out, flash some official-looking badges, and claim from the Department of Homeland Security, and that Erickson is with them, is an agent, and they need to speak with him alone. hmm Now, this spooks the hell out of the sheriffs. And this might seem a little strange, but this is not long after 9 Right. And the Department of Homeland Security at the time had quite a bit of influence. Right. And so the sheriff's backed off. They're like, no, we are not going to mess with this. Fine. Do what we got to do mm-hmm. now? This is going to be a mistake because surprise, surprise, they're not actually DHS agents. Right. So that good Samaritan of uh, that, uh, that Carney talked to earlier, he's going to call the police the next day and he's going to actually have a tip that he actually was there on the scene and he was going to stay until he looked inside the total Ferrari. And he happened to find a very likely illegal in California Glock 40 automatic handgun with a large capacity magazine. Uh Uh-huh. And he went, I need to leave. (laughs) Which, fair. Yeah. (laughs) Like, because we're not going to get, we don't, we just simply don't have time to get into all the other crimes that Uh, Stefan's going to commit while he's in California alone. uh Uh-huh. So, Kind of makes sense that he decided to, like, just leave and get out of here. So, and just to clarify for everybody, uh, California, very strict gun laws. Yeah. Large capacity magazines, Class C felony. Yep, not going not gonna to go easy. Automatic handguns, also a felony.
1: <laughs> See, I was going to say, like, compared to everything else, <clears throat> a DUI doesn't seem like it's really worth cooking up an anti-terrorism grift for. Uh, mm. But, yeah, the the gun felony thing, that makes more sense.
0: Yeah, it, it does. It does. Oh, and, you know, I actually didn't write this down, but we're actually doing pretty good on time. So, Alex, how do you think they even got those badges?
1: <sighs> I'm going to assume theft.
0: You yeah, know, Something <sighs> actually more legal and disturbing. Well, oh. Okay, the, the Department of Homeland Security badges are illegal, but... The badge that Stefan had actually was legal because, you see, the story goes – there's actually conflicting stories on this. The, mm-hmm. the article I found for The Drive claims one thing. The article I found from The Wired claims another. I'm going to go with The Wired article because I found um, that story show up in more, more sources. Okay. Uh, but honestly, I, either would be believable. Mm. So the story goes is that there was a transportation bus company that was on the outskirts of, skirts of Los Angeles. And then one day, Stefan Erickson shows up in a Ferrari, because of course. All right. And he basically talks with the owner of it. The owner was worried about security in his location, mm-hmm. and it turns out in California, you can actually form a private security force if it's a large enough organization.
1: Uh huh.
0: And so, in exchange of being put in charge of this private security force, he would install cameras all around his bus stop, essentially. And so the guy was like, Yeah, sure, sounds good to me. Let's Does do this. it? I mean, he gets free cameras. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, those cameras were never installed. Okay, sure. But Erickson got a shiny free badge. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> technically he's Oh my he's... god. Oh, it gets it gets even weirder, by the way. Um, as as we'll get into in a second. Uh-huh. But we had to get into the immediate aftermath of this car crash. Okay. This is what turns the Gizmondo story from a Swedish and weird tech world story into something that was briefly a major news story. Okay. Because as mentioned, it's not every day that a Ferrari Enzo, one of 400 of its kind, is destroyed mm-hmm. in such a spectacular fashion. And it didn't take long for Ericsson's criminal history to become incredibly well-known. And unsurprisingly, the police were like, oh, we actually got to take action about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... It it took a little while. They collected some evidence. Blood tests of the scene came back that proved he was indeed the driver of the car. Mm -hmm. And on April 6, 2006, Stefan Erickson's Bel Air mansion was raided. There they found a bunch of stuff, including a a 357 Magnum that was not his. Mm -hmm. It actually belonged to a friend of his who was a deputy sheriff, because that's just something that could happen in the United States. Yeah. And uh he was also found of course to have a lot of cocaine. Okay. Uh you would not be shocked to find that he had a large Scarface poster that was over his uh, uh that was over his bed because of course. Of course, yeah. Uh there's a bunch of other weapons that were in there as well. And uh, he was also charged with a grand theft auto. Now, uh the grand theft auto one is particularly fun because of how he got charged for it. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So, Alex, you remember way, way back when Freer was talking about those cars that he had outside of his headquarters and likes? well, sh- you know, those sure aren't do. actually company cars. Uh-huh. Uh, Well, he wasn't lying. <laughs> Whose cars were they then? They may have belonged to a Scottish uh, investment bank called the Scottish Capital Bank. Uh-huh. You see, Alex, it turns out when you reach a certain level of rich and people invest in you, you could just have them loan you luxury cars. Right. Yeah. That's just a thing. Sure. And so, and so that's how uh, they got a hold of these Ferraris. And it's also how they got a hold of a bunch of other cars. Mm-hmm. Now, these cars under the, the licensing deal were not supposed to leave the United Kingdom. But Ericsson, yeah. you know, he has allegedly a history of smuggling cars. He got them to America. So once the crash happened, the bank got notified of this and was obviously very confused about how their cars end up in a foreign country and destroyed. Right. Yeah. Hence the charge. Yeah. So we're going to get into the aftermath of all this, but we got to wrap up Freer. Carl Freer did not escape the law either, though. Well, not immediately, I guess I should say. Mm. Uh, He did get charged with something that was much smaller and sadder. Uh specifically he was charged for impersonating a police officer so he could buy a 44 caliber handgun.
1: Oh. Oh buddy. Now,
0: yeah, kind of small time. Uh now he's going to get these uh charges dismissed. He's going to prove that um uh, he wasn't impersonating a police officer and he did have a gun permit. Uh-huh. But um at this point though, he's like I need to get out of here. He immediately sells his home. His yacht just disappears. Okay. No idea if he sold it or not. He just disappears. And at this point, he basically exits the story. Uh, he's not going to get charged with any of the crimes. I mean, he's going to get sued a couple of times. Oh, yeah. But as far as I know, he gets off scot-free for all this. Now, he does eventually found a company called GitFugu, which does not exist anymore. <laughs> it basically is there to make mobile search tools. Okay, uh, sure. But now nowadays, he just kind of hangs around and gives cool interviews. Okay, yeah. Now, Stefan Eriksson wouldn't be so lucky. Or maybe he would be initially because he would go on trial for his many, 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 many crimes. But he managed to not get convicted after the jury came back deadlocked on all counts, 10-2, in favor of conviction. Now, the case was going to be retried when Erickson's legal team accepted a plea bargain for a two-year conviction. Prosecution was looking for a 14-year term, so it seemed like a good deal. Right. So he was released from prison on January 21st, 2008, and immediately deported to Sweden where, of course, he would get in trouble again. Yep. In 2009, he robbed a woman named Daniela Kovex and her boyfriend of about 100,000 US dollars worth of items, such as artwork, clothing, shoes, and a video game console. Alex, you want to guess what video game console it was? Was it a Gizmondo? Yes, it was. <laughs> because, you see, Daniela's boyfriend was Peter Oof, Erickson's old running mate. Oh, my God. Yeah! He was swiftly convicted and spent 18 months in prison. Now, as of this moment, he is a free man, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most recent news I found on him is that he was facing drug charges in Sweden as of 2014, but there's no other news to be had of him. Okay. All in all, Ericsson and Freer managed to lose over $300 million during their time at Gizmondo, and as of this writing, it is unknown where at least half of that money went, and it likely will never be known. And... That is the story of the Gizwondo.
1: Wow. Right? Wow. Just, just crimes all the way down.
0: All the way down. And like I said, I did not get into even half of it. <laughs> there is, like, one of my favorite stories as relayed in here, because we, we do have a little bit of time. Uh, it, there's a story about how, like, they found, like, one of their employees was embezzling money from the company. Uh-huh. And, like, they took him to a back room and, like, tied him up and were, like, menacing him and then like the dude just like lied and said like oh no i had cancer and so i had to pay for my medical bills and like oh buddy we feel so bad for you <laughs> okay well listen if you pay us back it, it'll be fine okay just just pay us back and then he immediately like fled to ireland uh-huh, yeah i was never seen of again yeah like it's like, like there's just stories like that that are just all throughout this and it's it's just amazing like cuz like they do a lot between the years 2000 and 2005 it's it's an amazing story. Yeah,
1: it's, oh, it's something.
0: Mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm. And you too, listeners, can take lessons from this because it turns out, you know, tech firms nowadays, they operate by much of the same rules. Yeah, it's pretty similar. It's, it hasn't <laughs> changed a whole lot. I'm not saying that you should go out and, you know, you know, fraudulently reproduce the signature of the head of the Xbox division in order to you know, start up your own tech startup slash video game company. But if you were to do that, it technically has worked before. <laughs> I am not endorsing this, <laughs> but you could. <laughs> oh, oh. My God, man. Yeah, yeah, it's it's oh, it's such a for some reason, video game consoles and like incredibly, incredibly odd stories of grift. Shameful, shameful grift. Is, yeah, it's is so prevalent. It's amazing. It's
1: just all over the industry. There's so much of it.
0: Yeah, I really can't wait to see how the Amico stuff like shakes out finally.
1: <laughs> oh
0: yeah. Uh, but that's a story for another day. Alex, how are you feeling?
1: I I feel. Oh boy, I I went on a ride. That was a journey.
0: Hmm. Wasn't it though? Wasn't it? Yeah. Very, very wild ride. One might say a Ferrari ride. Yeah.
1: It oh in going airborne and scattering your wreckage across four hundred yards.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I forgot to mention that like they actually filmed the inside of the of the car wreck. Uh-huh. Like when the car was like driving. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you clearly see on the speedometer, they were actually doing like 199. Damn. Which rad. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Kind of awesome, but also don't
0: don't do that. Don't do that. There's a reason why if you hit a slight bump, you go airborne at that speed. (laughs) Uh, But yeah. Alex, do you have any final thoughts?
1: Just this. Hey, hey, listeners. Hey, kids. Kids at home. Listen, do you want to get rich? Don't do crimes. Don't sell drugs. Don't steal cars. Don't rob banks. Don't do street crimes, okay? Clean up your act, hit the books, read, study, get your grades up, get your grades super high, go to college, go into a business major, get your MBA, and then scam investors. Yeah. That's where the money is.
0: And it turns out it's basically legal. You, you,
1: the key is to get credentials good enough to lie to rich people, and that's mm-hmm. how you get rich.
0: And here's the good news: rich people are stupid. They're
1: very stupid and very, very eager to make money. If you tell them you can make them money, they will
0: give you money. Mm-hmm. They will. They 100% will. Just have have more confidence that you should have some vague credentials and like lie, but don't don't take the lie too far. Yeah, it just, can just, technically just lie be a crime.
1: right on the edge and then every you know every few lies throw a really awesome party with their money
0: mm-hmm. exactly make sure it's their money yes hmm. that's the key <laughs> and that's going to do with that heartfelt life lessons from from Michael and Alex and if you want more heartfelt life lessons or to listen to about the stories about video game plotlines, you go to ftp.podbean.com or search for fallen through plot holes on the podcast service of your choice but i think we're going to do that we're gonna we're gonna end that at that point there. That was a really good transition, yep. and then I flubbed the ending. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Take care, everybody. Goodbye.